Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church of Nashville podcast. We normally would not do an introduction to the message, but unfortunately we had some technical difficulties and lost about two minutes of this recording. The portion we lost is immediately following the reading of the text. To fill in the gap for you, Matt introduces the two main points of the sermon. One, how does God view sinners? And two, how do you view your sin? Again, we apologize for the inconvenience and we hope that you will enjoy today's message. Well, I want to invite all of you to turn over to Luke chapter 15 for the first of a couple of sermons in this chapter as we work our way through a set of three parables that are all meant to go together, all responding to the same situation. Uh, Jonathan will will do the most well-known of those next week, the prodigal son, perhaps familiar to you, and and I know you'll be looking forward to that as I am. Uh, Today we'll focus on the parables known as the lost sheep and the lost coin. Have you ever lost something precious to you? Um, I have. Uh, I lose all uh, things all the time, for the record. Um, I guess probably most of you would think of me as an absent-minded person. That's the, the label that you'd give to it. I prefer laser-focused. In my mind, there's not room for things like where my wallet was the last time I touched it, my keys, one of several of my hats that I might need to go out on a sunny day. My wife would choose the absent-minded description for my condition, and that gives me a certain sort of glee at knowing that the most precious things we ever lost were hers, and she lost them. (laughs) Not once, but twice. Not once, but twice, as we were bagging our leaves in our front yard full of leaves, Basically, this exact time of year, on back-to-back years, my beloved wife lost both her wedding band and her diamond-studded engagement ring. Now, fortunately, one of these times it was pretty easy to find. It was still sitting, believe it or not, right on top of a leaf where it fell. Even though it was after dark, we come out there with a flashlight, we could see it shining right there. Easy to find, easy to grab. The other time, not so much. Uh, On on this particular occasion, we were about eight or ten leaf bags in to our all-day fall project. If you ever stuff leaf bags, you know what I'm talking about. It is tedious work. It is no fun. And we were about eight or ten bags into it when we first realized that the rings were missing. We searched the area around where we had been working, didn't find them. Obviously, we didn't. It's a bunch of grass and mulch and still remaining leaves. And then... We had the thought that best case scenario, these rings are in one of those bags that we just spent the last hours packing down. And so in hope and despair, we began to unpack these bags leaf by leaf by leaf. Because you know, it's easy to to, to hide rings under leaves. You just dump out this bag of leaves. You're not going to be any better off than before. And you won't know which one you didn't find it in that it's still in. So, leaf by leaf, we pulled them out. We got about, uh, I'm just going to speed this up a little bit and tell you, because I know you're wanting to know what happened. I, uh, it wasn't a pleasant experience. It wasn't how we planned to spend that significant block of time on a beautiful fall afternoon that turned into a fall evening, that turned into a break for the night, that turned into another beautiful fall day on which we actually found them. Uh, but we did find them. Uh, we made it through several of those bags, leaf by leaf, before we realized, ah, I bet this neighbor that we've got. He seems like the kind of guy 
that would have a metal detector. <laughs> and he did have a metal detector, and we found it. So we now own a metal detector. We got one of our own. If you ever find yourself in a similar position, you know who to call to, 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 to loan you the metal detector. I'd be happy to, though I don't wish it for you. There was no question we were going to spend this kind of time going after these rings because they mattered to us. I mean, I bought these things as a 19-year-old kid. We don't exactly need insurance on them. These are not valuable rings by the standards of the world. But for, to us, they're irreplaceably precious because of what they mean to us. We didn't hesitate to throw aside everything else we'd planned for the amount of time that it took to find them. And when we found them, we felt exactly the kind of relief and joy you'd expect that we did. Exactly the kind of relief and joy you felt if you've ever been in a similar situation. You know exactly what I'm talking about if you've been there. And what's amazing to me and what I hope will be amazing to you this afternoon is that Jesus, to teach us how God feels about sinners, tells stories like the one I've just told. Stories of losing and searching and finding and rejoicing. He told these stories, friends, to challenge a terribly mistaken assumption that his hearers had about God that you might have about God too. And it's a challenge that could set you free. I want to begin by reading the verses we're going to consider together this afternoon. I want to ask you, please, to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in Luke chapter 15, we're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." you've lost is somehow in some way significant to you when it matters I'm told by people who would know that I lose skin cells all the time that every single day I'm losing them that in roughly every month I'm completely new skin wise I don't even notice those skin cells as they disappear they don't matter to me but my hair when it began to turn loose at a very young age, it, it did register. Not because the hair itself was particularly important to me. It actually wasn't. It wasn't great hair to begin with. Uh, but, but, but I noticed it more than I noticed the skin. I mean, it, it, especially this time of year. It's cold out there. 
and without a head of hair, I mean, you'd be surprised how much different a 30-degree night will feel. My hair mattered in a way my skin cells don't. Same with those rings that we lost. We could have shrugged our shoulders and just gotten over it. We could afford to buy new ones. They weren't expensive rings. Not relatively speaking. We still had our health. We still had our home that we love. We still have our children to love and to care for. Still had good football on TV. That's not how we reacted at all, though. We didn't just shrug our shoulders and move on with it and count our blessings. We emptied those bags with single-minded focus and intensity because what we'd lost was precious. And that's what we see in these parables. The whole thing doesn't make sense unless God sees these, these sinners as precious. The shepherd notices his sheep is missing. He doesn't comfort himself that he's still got 99 left over, still got a nice full flock. He could always buy more, another one to replace this one. He doesn't, he doesn't comfort himself in that way. This woman, even more, it's, it's clear here. She's, just, she's lost one of her 10 coins. She doesn't count her blessings that she's still got nine left. No, these losses register. They bring life to a halt because these things are precious, because they're treasured. And remember why Jesus is telling this story. He's telling the story to show us how God views sinners. Every human life is made in God's image. Every life is made by God's intentional and fatherly care, knit together in its mother's womb by him on purpose. And among all the things that he's made, the Bible tells us nothing brings him more joy, nothing matters more to him than humans. And every single one of us registers with him. Our neglect of him, our disobedience to him, our doubt about whether he even exists or whether he's worth our attention, our sin, in other words, friends, doesn't change the fact that we are, every single one of us, every one of you, precious in his sight. The Pharisees, in their grumbling, they just totally miss this. They see sinners and they despise them. Not God. He treasures them. How does God view sinners? God treasures sinners. And secondly, God pursues sinners in their wandering. God pursues sinners. When sinners turn away from God, God goes after them. Our sin, this is the amazing thing built into this parable, friends. Our sin against God doesn't actually drive him away in the way you would expect. It draws him in. That's incredible. Look at the way the parables work. Look at the tender attentiveness of the shepherd. When he realizes his sheep is missing, he doesn't leave him uh, on his own out there to, to, to make the most of the situation he's just made for himself. He doesn't blame him, say it's all his own fault. He'll get what he deserves. He doesn't hang back to see if maybe this is the sheep that could find his way home, a sort of test of his ability to set himself right again. No, the shepherd knows better than that. He knows who he's dealing with. He knows that sheep are dumb and sheep are helpless. And yeah, it might be his own fault for wandering off, but but there's no coming back on his own. So, so he goes after him. And finding him, he doesn't just give him instructions on how to get back home again. Like, hey, hey here, just follow me. He doesn't even like, hitch him to a, to a leash of some sort and, and, and lead him back. No, he throws him up on his shoulders and carries him all the way. Because that's the only way that sheep is getting home. Look at the meticulous care of the woman with her coin. She knows it's missing. She knows where she last had it. She knows it must be in her house. So what does she do? 
She lights the lamp. Wouldn't have been any natural light in the home of a woman like this in this time. She would, even in the middle of the day, she'd need a lamp. So she, she lights the lamp. She moves the furniture around. She's diligently seeking. I'm imagining her up under, uh, on her hands and knees, looking up under any piece of furniture that's there, moving it around, sweeping. She's going to find that coin because this coin matters. She pursues it all in. And here's the remarkable thing that, that, about God that Jesus is bringing to our attention. So remember who he's, he's contrasting God to? The Pharisees. They see the sinners draw near, they move away. But God sees sin in his sinners. And because they matter to him, he draws closer. What alienates the religious elite of this day brings God to attention in the sense of these parables with a, a renewed with what in the parable itself comes off as a kind, of, a kind of intensity that sin has brought out of him. We have to be careful when we're, using anal- or when we're unpacking analogies like this not to, not to push too far things that may not be true about God in the larger scheme of, of what the Bible teaches us. But I believe this is a focus Jesus wants us to have for him. That when he sees sin, he draws near. And it's a truth that Paul will end up celebrating in Romans chapter 5 on the backside of Jesus. Life and death and resurrection. God shows his love for us, Paul wrote. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God pursues sinners in their wandering. One last thing that these parables show us about God. God rejoices over sinners when they repent. God treasures sinners, all of them. God pursues sinners in their wandering. And thirdly, God rejoices over sinners when they repent. This is, without doubt, the main thing Jesus draws our attention to in in these parables. He draws our attention to God's rejoicing over these sinners when they repent. Everything else builds to this response. You can see it, for example, in the sheer number of times that joy or rejoicing come up through these verses. Scan the passage again with me. Look to, look, look to verse 5. When he's found the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 6, when he gets home, he calls his friends together and calls them to rejoice with me. Verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 who need no repentance. Same theme in the next parable. When she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. And just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels. There's not many verses there. You see how many times joy and rejoicing comes up. It's like this flashing light. Look here. Notice this. You have to see this about God. Because what the Pharisees think is that if sinners don't get what they deserve, I'm not about that. They're grumbling. The opposite of rejoicing. So this right here is what he's throwing into their face. When God sees a sinner come home. When he sees a sinful person see the truth about their sin and disown it. Well, all he does is rejoice. It's as if Jesus is saying against the backdrop of this grumbling of the Pharisees and the community they created. And with this reference to the, to the joy of the angels of God and to the, 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 uh, the, the heavenly community... It's like he's saying, I come from that world into yours. The kingdom I'm building is one where it's done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, let me tell you what happens 
when people get serious about their sin and, and turn away from it. In heaven, only one thing ever happens in that case. We party. We rejoice. We put out the extra spot at the table. Think about what this shows us about God. He's no Pharisee. When sinners acknowledge their sin, there's no, I told you so with God. There's not this finger wagging, you should have known better than, than to run off. There's no wait and see approach that he takes. So I'll believe it when I see it. Now, I know you say that you're sorry for what you've done and that you don't want to do it again, but, but I've heard that before. Let's just see. Come talk to me in a couple years. There's no cloud hanging over them in his community. No stigma that they can't shake with him. All there is is deep and overflowing and uncontainable joy. And this fits perfectly with the image the Old Testament has given us for our God. Psalm 103, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, as far as could be, infinitely far, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. Or think of the stunning promise of Jeremiah 31. I will forgive their iniquity, God says, and their sins I will remember no more. We're talking here about the uncontainable, all-knowing, infinite God of the universe, choosing not to remember. Before him, in his eyes, sinners aren't defined forever by the wrong that they've done, but by what he chooses to make them. When he looks at their past, what he sees isn't the sin they brought with them into his presence, but the, but the repentance that brought them home. He sees and rejoices over the fact that they want nothing to do with it anymore. And friends, that's, that sets up the question I want to leave with you. I mean, I think these parables need barely an explanation. I've just spent the last 20 minutes telling you what you could have gotten probably on a quick read-through. God treasures sinners. He pursues them when they wander. He rejoices when they repent. That's all that he notices about their sin when they repent is that they repented of it. But these parables are always meant not just to enlighten us, not just even to teach us about who God is and what he's like, but meant to call from us the proper response to this God with whom we have to deal. These parables are always an invitation into the kingdom he's offering. And they leave us with a question, how will we respond? So the question I wanna leave you with that Jesus points us to, even in the way he sums up each parable is, how do you view your sin? We've talked about how God views sinners and there is life in what we've seen. But the question for us is, how will we, how will you view your sin? I want you to notice a detail in the way that Jesus sums up each of these parables. You'll see it in verse 7 and you'll see it again in verse 10. Just so, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
repentance. Friends, this is the detail that holds the key. The key to us experiencing the mercy and love of God that these stories have so beautifully celebrated for us. I'm talking about repentance. Jesus means for us to notice God's posture towards sinners in these stories more than anything else, but it matters. It still matters how sinners view sin. To enjoy the mercy and forgiveness and grace of the God behind these parables, we have to first agree with him about the seriousness of the sin that that separated us from him in the first place. We have to own it, what sin is, that we're guilty, and disown it. Repentance is a word that has to do with turning around, leaving one path, take another. In the Bible, it means, as I've said, disavowing the sin that separates us from God, that that trays his ways for ours, and agreeing with him about what's good and what isn't good. It involves different behavior for sure, but, but what I want you to know about repentance is that it isn't just like a new set of laws to go and fulfill. Don't think of it that way. A new test to hope to pass. Repentance begins with a posture of heart and mind towards the sin that separated you from God in the first place. It begins, in other words, with what the Bible calls godly sorrow, with a grief over the weight of sin and a deep desire to be free of it. It involves different behavior, but it never starts there. Repentance is about what you see. Do you see what God sees? when you see your sin. Without repentance, we won't see why Jesus is so necessary and we won't see why Jesus is so precious. Let me say what I mean. Without repentance, we won't see why Jesus is so necessary and we won't see why Jesus is so precious. Here's what I mean. It's possible for us to see images like the ones we've just considered about God's love and mercy and assume that the reason he can be so tender with us, so patient, so caring is that sin isn't actually such a big deal in the first place. We can imagine a God as a long-suffering and joyful father of a willful, adorable toddler, right? Where, where the cuteness and the low stakes combine to, to make it easy to look past their foibles. Some years back, I had a friend whose son was having a hard time laying off the Christmas ornaments I guess it was that first year that he really connected with what was going on here and how fun Christmas ornaments really are. He was just touching them. He was messing with them. They were worried he was going to break them. So they made it a rule, no touching. And he got that rule. He understood. It got into his heart and mind. Uh, But he did not obey it. Uh, They noticed him sneaking closer and closer. I guess without, I don't even know that he realized they were watching him. But they noticed that what he would do is he'd kind of get ready and he'd make a pass, you know, in his little toddler way, running past the tree with one finger extended, extended index finger, swipe the ornament as he, as he moved past and keep on going. Over and over he would do this. And that, I mean, let's just be honest, that's adorable. That's a really cute thing to do. And there's not much harm done. I mean, even if he knocked one off and it broke, it's an ornament. It's a cute story. It's the kind of thing you remember when they're 30 and you tell it to their friends to embarrass them. A loving father is going to have a whole lot more time holding back laughter than holding back wrath. When these are the stakes and when it's that cute. It's easy to look the other way. So long as that's how we view our sin, we will have a vastly distorted view of ourselves and a vastly diminished view of the love of God. 
Friends, we, we could sentimentalize the stories we've just considered together this afternoon and think of God and his love for sinners and sort of just shrug our shoulders at it. Of course he forgives me. I mean, that's, that's his job. That, that, that's the role he plays in this story that's about me. The story of my life, that's, that's, his, that's his role to play in it. He forgives. But so long as that's our posture toward our sin, when, when this is how we see ourselves and how we see God, we can't possibly understand why Jesus is necessary. I love the way one of my favorite hymns puts this, an old, old hymn. One of its verses goes like this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Friends, the ultimate picture of God's love for sinners is not this parable, actually, but the life and death of the one who tells it. The one who describes himself elsewhere as the good shepherd who not only feeds and protects, but willingly and even joyfully lays down his life for his sheep. Sheep who couldn't be saved any other way than through a sacrifice of his life for theirs. Without repentance, without looking at our sin and seeing what God sees, that just makes no sense. You can't possibly see how far his love for sinners really goes. And not only can you not see why Jesus is necessary. Friends, at the level of your own experience, at the level of your heart, you cannot experience why Jesus is so precious apart from repentance. You can't experience what it is to be seen for the sinner you are without denial, without avoidance of any kind, without trying to make it prettier, without trying to explain the context and the way in which it happened, without any of that, to be seen completely as you are and loved completely anyway. Repentance is the only path to that kind of freedom. This week I went back to a wonderful old classic from the 1600s by an English Puritan called Thomas Watson on the doctrine of repentance. And one of his main themes is to encourage people to be honest about their sin so they can be truly grateful for Jesus. Till sin be bitter, he wrote, Christ will not be sweet. Yes, it hurts to see and admit the truth about who we are on our own. Yeah, we would really like to be better than this. It hurts to know that we're not what we hope to be or what others expected us to be, much less what God created us to be. That's painful. If you're doing it right, there's a sorrow you can't shake. But this sorrow over sin is what makes Christ precious to us in our hearts. Here's Watson again. How welcome is a surgeon to a man who is bleeding from his wounds. Repentance isn't necessary because God wants you to wallow in your own mess or to live with shame always hanging around you, always weighing you down. That's not who he is. That's not what he wants. He rejoices when you repent. He forgets your sins against him. 
Repentance is necessary because it's how we lay hold of the precious gift that is his son, Jesus. Repentance is how we cry out, help, this is not okay. I I don't know what else to do. I have nowhere else to go. I did this. Who will save me? And when we repent, Our sin no longer defines who we are or where we're headed. Because we get a shepherd who fights our sin for us from then on out. And we know there is a rejoicing in heaven that is only a faint echo of the eternal, everlasting celebration that we will enjoy in the presence of our Father when he has brought us all the way home. That's our hope tonight, friends. Let me pray that God will help us to hold on to it. Father, I pray that you would give us through your word this afternoon the hope that we can't live without, the hope that does not disappoint, and that you would lead us through seriousness about sin, through heartfelt repentance, into the joy that even now the hosts of heaven experience. We pray that our community will be a community of joy in which we only ever want to see sinners draw near and never grumble about it. In which we ourselves are leading the way back to Jesus in repentance and faith every day. And we pray that you would do this work so that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.